All right, 1 Samuel chapter 31, the last chapter in this book. We'll move on next week to 2 Samuel. You knew if you've read through them, I, I trust that you've read through this numerous times. And, and we knew we were going to get to this chapter at some point. It almost as you study this and read through it, it's almost like the narrator, the author himself is just kind of slow to get to this point because it is so dark. This is in, in contrast to last week. It was a joy last week to teach of God's working in David's life and uh, David being faithful to God through so many difficult things. He didn't give up. And in the end, God gave total success. And everyone around David um, um, enjoyed and profited from David's faithful relationship with God and his commitment to God. He was a blessing to all of those around him because of his um, heart, his relationship with God. And then we get to this point, and the exact opposite is taking place. Um, the contrast here, Saul, who has rejected God, and really cut himself off, his own fault, um, from any communication with God, whether it be priests, whether it be prophet. And remember, he was desperate to get direction. I wouldn't say he was desperate to talk with God as much as he was desperate to find out what to do in a desperate situation, because as he saw, the Philistines were intent upon taking over and that spirit of fear that he was dealing with, Saul was in a panic and distressed, and he did the unthinkable, one of the most unthinkable things in um, Israelite uh, culture at this time. He went to a medium, one who, um, whose power comes not from God, but from the enemy of God. And Saul sought her out, and they were able to find her, and of course, God took over. There was none of Satan's power involved in this particular encounter at all. God took over, brought Samuel back up, and Samuel chastised Saul for his disobedience and gave him that awful prophecy that you and your sons will die in battle. So we've been waiting for this. Um, we knew it was going to come, but I just want to be prepared that this isn't the feel-good lesson that last week was, but it's important. And there's important lessons to learn here. So let's get into it. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Taken here from the scene with David, right? Complete victory and deliverance for everyone around David. And were taken from that setting to a dark battleground of defeat and despair. And the author just quickly recounts. It's almost like he just wants to get through it because it's, it's awful. He describes the results of the Philistines' battle with Israel. Remember, David was supposed to go in with the Philistines. Um, and without David's presence, God miraculously protected David and his men. But really, without David's presence, the Philistines have the full advantage now. There's no way that David can turn around in the midst of the battle and help the Israelites um, there on their own. And without the presence 
of the man with the heart for God, kind of say in, in this drama, the man with the heart for God has left the stage. He's gone. And now what's left? The armies of God are left with a rebellious, calloused, and broken king. And it's not going to end well. Remember, Saul has just received a prophecy of doom for the outcome of this battle. We really already know what's going to take place. And the people, and I think there's still a picture here of most of Israel still trusting in Saul rather than trusting in God. And they have their trust now in a king that literally has a death sentence pronounced on him. And so the battle commences. And what do we have here? The armies of Israel quickly flee and they're really decimated on the top of this mountain, Mount Gilboa. And verse two, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. And so we have this awful picture. Saul and his sons are overtaken. And quickly, the narrator describes all three sons lose their lives. You know, it's almost, it's interesting. I feel like in a sense, as I've read through this, the narrator has distanced us from Jonathan for a while. And maybe that kind of helps soften the blow as we hear, yeah, because of his father's sin, Jonathan lost his life too. Um, godly man. In some ways, as I study Jonathan's life, he seems to have more character than even David, and he was such a positive example for David. And of course, David um, already has the testimony of his heart for God. I'm not trying to take that away from him at all, but um, Jonathan is always was always the one to encourage David. And really, this is one of David's greatest losses in his life, as we're going to see next week at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 1, the true loss in his friend's death. And I have to be careful here. I remember a radio talk show host sometimes saying that uh, playing the game of if is a game that children play. So I, I don't want to take a lot of time doing what if scenarios, but I have thought this. I'll just share this with you as an expert. I've often I've wondered as I studied this, what would have happened if Jonathan lived? Would he have been able to continue to encourage David? Would some of the stumbling that David had later on in his life have been curbed because he still had the influence of this very godly friend? I think it would have helped. Um, I, I think the only real reason to even think along those lines, folks, is um, remember when you have godly friends, godly people in your life that God has gifted you, value them value um, God's gift um, to you in that way that they remind you, they um, correct you when you need it lovingly. But if you have someone, whether it's your wife, your husband, or, or a friend that is a godly example and that your hearts are knit as far as your relationship with God, truly treasure that and take advantage of it. Because David lost his friend at this point. And I think it would have benefited him later on in his life. So Saul loses all of his sons here. And now the hand of death, you can almost see in a dramatic sense, is reaching for Saul in an intense battle. In verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. I don't know if the archers were specifically trying to take him out. It almost has the idea, really, of God's sovereignty 
And as these archers, Philistine archers, shoot their arrows, that they find Saul in God's sovereignty and in God's control of this whole thing. Badly, seriously wounded in the midst of this. Um, those arrows find their mark. Saul's severely injured. And now he's really in a tough situation. And he knows what the Philistines will do if they find him alive. And the Philistines don't, don't misunderstand, even with um, David's so-called alliance with the Philistines, they're evil, um, brutal, cruel people. And Saul knows that if they find him alive, they will torture him and mutilate his body. And he doesn't want any part of that. It's already dark enough. And so what does he do? He calls on his armor bearer to finish the job. He knows he doesn't have much time left. He wants to die before the Philistines get to him in verse four. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. He knows what he's facing if the Philistines get to him before his armor bearer would, would take his life in this way. Um, and so he calls on the armor bearer, this very faithful man, to do this. At the same time, it's notable the response. His armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. And this seems to have the idea that this armor bearer would not do this. I don't think this, I think this is not describing, although I'm sure he was fearful and he was um, totally um, terrorized by this whole situation. I think this points to the fact, though, that this armor bearer recognizes that this is God's anointed and he has no business taking the life and showing, um, taking that authority. So he's willing, in other words, to disobey his own king's order for the higher principle of not harming God's anointed leader. And that principle is going to take is going to be in play even as we get into the first part of Second Samuel. So we need to note that that um, these there were certain um, high character people that recognize that you don't touch God's anointed. That's God's job. That's God's um, prerogative alone. That's not for anybody else to take part in. So this armor bearer refuses to do it. And then of course, what does Saul do in a desperate last minute action? He took his own sword and he fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So here we have Saul taking his own life. His armor bearer follows suit. This is suicide. And yet I want to make a clear point about suicide in the Bible, because it doesn't say whether Saul was right or wrong in this. It doesn't say anything at all. But every time you have a situation like this, it's rare. It doesn't happen very often. When suicide takes place, it's never presented in God's word in a positive light. There's nothing positive about this whole situation. Desperate, a man's about to be tortured and cruelly mistreated, and so he decides to take his own life. There's nothing beautiful. It's ugly. And uh, we need to remember that, and this is actually one of those things, I think, that we talked about with a conscience issue, um, that it falls under the moral issue and under uh, biblical, uh, what did I say, biblical 
um, considerations or biblical expectations that there's plenty of evidence in God's word that says that suicide is wrong. And really, it's, it's a direct disregard for the sixth commandment, right? It's murdering yourself. And that's still wrong and applies to those who would do this. It's God's prerogative to decide when we die. And it's not our own choice to make. Really, it's the most selfish action that we can take if we decide to take that. And so let's just be clear on this. Just because God's word doesn't say anything specifically about this, it never paints this choice in a good light. And scripture points to the fact that this is not appropriate and God is not pleased with this. But as we know with Saul, he's never really that concerned in the end with what pleases God, just what will help him. In this situation, he just doesn't want to be tortured. And so he does this awful thing. Well, um, this obviously, as we continue, we're going to see this is the exact opposite in this awful scene of David's experience. Remember? We looked at that last week. Again, I'll go back to that. David and the people around him experienced total victory and blessing. Now the exact opposite. Saul and the people around him, everyone around Saul, suffers defeat and great loss. Saul and the army of Israel are totally wiped out. And it says here, verse 6, it kind of just summarizes all of this. Thus Saul died. And his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived with them. Um, even the people that lived nearby where this battle was, the Israelites, um, they had to abandon their homes and towns and literally become refugees while in the midst of the enemy occupation. And so everyone loses in this scenario. This is striking, really, right? This chapter 30, everyone around the man that has a heart for God is successful and victorious. 31, everyone around the man who has rejected God and has rebelled against him, great loss and um, chaos everywhere. Folks, let's let those two pictures really settle into our minds, because really the narrator in this is calling us to make a choice. Which way are you going to choose? Now, was David's way? Was it all flowers and light? and wonderful situations and, and, and no trouble at all. No, that's not at all the way that it was painted. Having a heart for God and submitting to him as a follower will not always be easy. And we saw that David did not have it easy, but it is the path to ultimate spiritual blessing and avoidance of total destruction. And I can make an even more important parallel to our experience today. Those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have committed, I'm following you, Jesus. I'm not perfect, but you're my savior. 
and my life is devoted to you, we're not promised an easy life. Everything's going to be great. But we are promised the ultimate spiritual blessings. Are we not? One day. It's not that this life won't have its blessings as well. God will lighten our load many times as believers, and he will give us times of joy along with the times of trouble. But we know that ultimately we, we are on a path toward a greater spiritual victory than even David experienced. And one day we will just rejoice eternally for all the blessings that we will experience. But those that reject Jesus and refuse to follow him and go the way of the world, their destruction is more inevitable and more awful than even what Saul experienced. Total destruction, eternal destruction forever in darkness and punishment. As awful as this picture is of what happened to Saul, it's a picture of what will happen that's even far darker and worse when we, we reject God and we rebel against him and we don't choose him as our God. And folks, this is sobering, but we're called to make a choice here. And I hope everyone here has. I hope that in, as we continue here, we're going to be reminded of, that Saul didn't always make the wrong choice, but ultimately he didn't have a relationship with God. And I hope that everyone here can truly say, I have chosen Jesus Christ. I have a relationship with him. And I've chosen the way to ultimate spiritual blessing that I'll experience for all eternity. And not rejection of him. Well, this, this if we stopped it right here, would be awful enough, right? Unfortunately, we have more details. The dark narrative continues. We find out the Israelites were in such a panic, the armies to flee and the people to flee, that they did something that they normally never would do when they left their kings and princes on the battlefield. Saul and his sons, their bodies just left there. And just as Saul feared, the enemy found them. And you'll see here, verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, you almost have this idea that the Philistines are in such a rush and it was such a quick victory that they weren't even paying attention to who they were killing. And they were just in this um, incredible push as God was allowing them victory. They were so successful, they actually had to come back the next day and, and um, quantify and discover who all that they had killed and the extent of their victory. So they come back, they're stripping the slain here. They're basically going through, again, not to be gross, this is just what happened. They were going through the dead bodies to find all that they could loot and plunder. And they found the king, Saul and his three sons, fallen on Mount Gilboa. And this awful um, uh, mutilation that takes place, Number nine, verse 9, so they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols, good news to them, awful news to the people of God and to the people. And just as Saul feared, the evil enemy is mutilating the bodies, parading them around in a victorious celebration that reveled in the supposed victory of their gods over Yahweh. One thing I'll, I'll mention here that, that came to mind as I was studying this, you know, this was another opportunity that the Philistines had to really 
consider who the real God was. And think of all the opportunities that they've had. David defeating Goliath. David actually being among them. I wonder if ever if David ever talked about Yahweh and talked about his God with these Philistines. They certainly saw the character of the man operating among them. Remember, they also even had the Ark of the Covenant with them for a while, and they saw the power of God working through the Ark of the Covenant. These evil people had so many opportunities that many of the other enemies never received to see God at work and see his power. And here they are at the end. They still don't get it. They still reject him. And they're mocking and they're rejoicing in the supposed win over their own God. And one day God would send someone very soon here to deal with them. And he would deal with them in um, a very effective way. But at this moment, it's, it's a great tragedy. We've already had a lot of tragedy. The armies of Israel wiped out. Saul and all of his sons are killed. But what really is the greatest tragedy in this story? That is that um, God is now being dishonored by the mocking of the enemy. That is the greatest tragedy in all this. And um, these, these, uh, these enemy armies are mocking God and mocking the king and his sons. Um, the greatest consequence of Israel's rejection of God and their adoration of that human king of Saul was that God is now being dishonored by the enemy. Um, and that's the greatest sin in all of this. In the midst of this darkness, though, there is one valiant act of bravery that stands out. Let's continue to read here. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. This was, again, to let everybody know that they were the victors. But in the midst of all this, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh. Remember, that's where Saul uh, liked to lead and where he liked to have his meetings under a tamarisk tree in honor of Saul. And they fasted seven days. In the midst of this awful story, you have these valiant men, this, this valiant act of bravery. These men from Jabesh Gilead, they're east of the Jordan River. They have to cross the river and bravely make a round trip mission. That's probably round trip is over 20 miles. And if you've ever walked 20 miles before, I don't think I have, but that takes a while. And they do this all in one night. They valiantly are able to get the bodies because they don't want the bodies to be disfigured in public. And they want the bodies and the bones, and specifically with, with the Israelites, it was very important that the bones be honored. Uh, remember, even Joseph talked about, make sure you carry my bones back to Israel when you end up in the promised land. That was, for whatever reason, that was very important to them. And they wanted these men to be honored. And so they do this for that. They have a reverence toward the king and a reverence for God. And so they... Um, bury these men, and then in reverence to God, and in mourning, they fast seven days. So this is commendable in the midst of all this. But let me ask you this. 
Why? Was there another reason they did this? Do you remember our history? Yeah. Chapter 11. 1 through 11 talks about the uh, Saul having helped them. Mm. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. If you'll remember, as soon as, as Saul became king, he delivered these, these people from the enemy, uh, the Ammonites. Um, and that was one of Saul's high points where it says the spirit of the Lord rushed on him and he is following God's direction. And it was an early act of obedience in Saul's life that we had hoped would translate into a life of faithful service, but it didn't. And I think this points to something else in the end here. Besides the valiant um, devotion of these men, because of what Saul had done for them. I think the narrator is also pointing out that Saul could have done so much more. He could have been a devoted servant of Yahweh and a successful king. He had that chance. He started out well. He had more potential than maybe any other king in Israel's history. Tall, strong. And what was the problem? He chose to rule in his own way. And to follow his own way. And when God's way and his and his mind coincided, okay, I'll be God. But then we had the creative obedience. And then we had the total disregard for God's people as he literally directed a whole city, town of priests to be wiped out, to be killed. And he chose his own way rather than God's. And so, so much potential. Saul had that was just wasted. There's one other question here. We'll, we'll continue in these next few verses here before we finish. But I think it comes, this is a good point to bring this out. In the end, was Saul a true follower of God? Did he truly have a relationship with Yahweh at all? Well, ultimately, only God knows. So I'm just going to have, I'm going to give you my opinion tonight. And that is from the evidence that I see here, and also the fact that he's not mentioned in the Hall of Faith, although not every believer in the Old Testament is mentioned in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. So let's be careful about that. There's a lot of people that are, are not there. But I, from what my study and from this, I've come to the conclusion, my opinion is that Saul never really had a real relationship with God. If I get to heaven and I meet King Saul and praise the Lord, I'm glad to be wrong. But the point is, in all this, I think there's an application here, is that, um, folks, we need to look at our own lives. And just because we've obeyed God a few times, or we've had a couple of moments, a couple of times of success in ministry, or we've, um, we've taken a trip or, or, or done a few things for God, that doesn't mean that we truly are a follower of him. In the end, what proves that is at the end of our life, we're still faithful and God is working through us and we have our faith in Jesus Christ and it becomes apparent to all that we are a follower of Jesus. But there are many, my point is, that can be enthralled with wanting to follow God and, and be very good at acting. 
Saul at times was very good at acting like he was devoted to God. But the rest of his life proved that he really wanted his own way. And it's a sobering um, uh, account and so, sobering thought as we reflect on his life that he could um, have such devastating results at the end. And the narrator is calling us to think through this. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 through 14, you can turn there if you want. The chronicler gives this summation of Saul's life. He says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. The chronicler here in the book of Chronicles actually makes a direct tie-in in the fact that one of the reasons Saul lost his life was that he went to a medium. We're not told that in 1 Samuel. But it says here, he died for his breach of faith. And what was that breach of faith? He did not keep the command of the Lord, and also he consulted the medium. He did not seek, verse 14, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. That really is probably the best summary that we can have of this whole thing and of Saul's life. And it is tragic, tragic. We don't want this to be the final sentence of how our lives are described. We want to be a David, one that has a heart for God. So, folks, really, I can just sum this up. By saying rejection of God truly has a horrible price to pay. Do we see that? Don't reject God. But dependence on God and relationship with him brings ultimate victory. And whatever we face now as believers, uh, we will have the ultimate victory. And spiritual blessings for all eternity will be ours. So the choice is stark. And we know what choice we need to make. So as we go to prayer tonight, let's make sure that let, let's, let's pray that we all have a heart for God in our, in our church family, that we all are um, following the same narrow path that Jesus talks about. And we uh, are ready to faithfully serve him and be devoted to him and not follow our own way.